Well, hello and welcome to Reason for Hope. We're laughing because I was doing a 10-second countdown and realized that I miscounted. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult. It counts down and trying to figure out backwards. It's hard for some people. That, no. <laughs> no, it's hard for me. Let's just say that. Welcome to Reason for Hope. We are live with you for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. We believe that the Bible is everything it says it is, God's Word, breathed out by Him, inspired by Him, and has the answers to life, the universe, and everything accurate right yeah life and godliness <laughs> godliness and that's the, the best kind of ness there is so we would love for you to send us our questions uh because your questions guide the show wherever the show goes is based on your questions so maybe you have a question on a, a verse or passage of scripture that you'd like to delve further into maybe something you're going through in your life you'd like to honor the law but not quite sure how to do that or the biblical perspective. We're here to help you with that, maybe world events or worldviews, all that kind of stuff. Really, any honest question, as long as you know, we're going to find the answers in the Bible. That's what we're here to do. My name is Dave Robson, and I am your host today, fielding those questions literally as they come on in. And with us also, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing? Doing okay. I'm still wondering if in the word sent, is the S or the C silent? What do you think, Peter? I'm Peter. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the Bible. <laughs> That's what we do. But we always start with a, I don't know what they call dad joke, I guess. Loosely. Pondering thought. Yes. Peter Martin's with us as well. You doing good? Doing good. Doing good. It's good to have you back. How's the kids doing? You have a newborn? No, I don't care. No. <laughs> Mom's job. Wow. <laughs> wow. We're going to edit that out before we, Live. Before we go. Yes. They're doing for the good. upload. My daughter got a little sick this week. That's why it's yeah, it's been, yeah, she's it's doing, been going around. She's doing a little better. Today. It is very cold here in Tucson, Arizona, where this show is. <laughs> it is very cold in Tucson, Arizona for Arizonans. For Arizona. It's very, it's, no. it's very cold. It's pretty cold. If I'm cold, it's cold. I'm a, I, I enjoy the cold, but. So there are multiple ways you and can... You're the only one wearing long sleeves here. That is true. You guys are wearing T-shirts, and I'm wearing a beanie as well. What's, and I'm the British person. What's going on with you? Are you warm enough? Yeah. Yeah. Here. yeah I, I here. wouldn't wear this outside. Okay, no. Okay, well, yeah. anyway, enough anyway. of that. Enough of that nonsense. There are multiple ways you can join us and get us your questions. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona. So keep that in mind as you're trying to find us. And if you're in the, the Tucson, um, Arizona area... Looking for a place to fellowship? Consider coming and visiting. We would love to meet you and minister to you here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We're right near Prince and I-10, right on the west side of the freeway. Pretty convenient, so keep that in mind. We also, on these same channels, broadcast our services. So even if you're far and wide, you can join us for our regular Wednesday evening and Sunday teaching. But with that being said, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab. You can join us there. On Facebook, also look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you go to your app store, you can download a mobile app to use on your iPad or mobile device. Again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have an app that works on Roku and Apple TV as well. I think it's probably only my parents that use Apple TV, but should you have an Apple TV device, you can find us there as well. Put us on the big screen. We are better heard than seen and heard, but uh, if you might want to use that, you certainly can. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're joining us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, but use that email address and we'll get to your questions on the next show and consider joining us on one of our live platforms when you're not on your drive time or when you have time to sit and join us 
that way. You can follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, who is not here today. He'll be joining us again tomorrow, right? Friday, tomorrow. At uh, Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. He posts highlights from the show and um, updates on prophecy updates and world events and all that kind of um, thing. So I believe those are all the ways you can join us. It seems to be expanding all the time. Before we go any further, should we pray and dedicate this time to the Lord and ask for his help? We should. Who's got it? First one to... (laughs) (laughs) A competition. I like talking to God. Dad, thank you for the chance to be here. Thank you that we have the freedom to not only share your word, but to do so empowered by your spirit. We ask that he would glorify your name through us, and we present ourselves available to be a part of that process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, Amen to that. Well, you guys, uh, we're talking about doing a new kind of series um, on uh, Christian books. Is We're always right? trying to keep it fresh here on the Reason <sighs> yes, for Hope. We are. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we have been talking about rhetoric, which is the art of public speaking, but I've wanted to do this for some time, and I think this is a good time to start. We're about to get the new year. It's time for you to start coming up with your New Year's resolutions, and maybe one of them should be to read more. So we're going to give you give you some book suggestions in this segment. All right. uh, we're going to just delve into a book. We're going to talk about the author. We're going to talk about why the book is important. Uh, we're not just going to pick out random books that we kind of like. I want to pick out books that are either really, really significant for us personally, meaning that we've read it and we really have applied it to our lives and we find it to be very important, or books that we find to be important historically, uh, books that have really moved the Christian movement in new and exciting directions. And uh, the one that we're going to talk about today is both. It is historically very important, but it is also very impactful to me personally and to many Christians. Mm. So we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis's famous Mere Christianity. Mm. Now, Mere Christianity is a very interesting book because it wasn't originally written as a book. It was actually written, it was actually spoken. Uh, C.S. Lewis, during World War II, during the time where Britain was being bombed by the Germans, he gave some broadcasts on, on air that turned into the book that we call Mere Christianity today. And in this, these broadcasts, he broke it into four segments. The first segment was introducing the listener to the person of God, why we should believe in God, and a certain apologetic method in understanding why God is rational to believe in. And we'll talk more about why that's important to C.S. Lewis and why this book was so foundational to the 20th century Christianity in a second. So the first one was, is God a rational belief, or is it something that we just believe in because it's traditional, or something we believe in because it makes us feel good, things like that. He gives a rational uh, explanation, which we'll get into in a second. The second chapter was getting into Christian ethics, understanding what Christian ethics are all about, things like that. The third one is getting into Christian doctrine, and then the fourth section is getting into Christian theology. So that one's a little bit more heady, and it gets into some really interesting topics like the Trinity and why we should believe that God is the kind of being that he says he is. So let's get into C.S. Lewis a little bit. So Clive Staples Lewis is a guy who was born in, I believe, 1898. You could fact check me on that. I might be off by a year or two, uh, but he was born around 1898. He lived in, fact check true, <laughs> Oh, I'm not. not no, no. I don't care. Eighteen ninety-eight. <laughs> okay, I'm sure I, was actually. I'm pretty sure it's eighteen ninety-eight. But anyway, I will tell you if you're wrong. Don't you worry. <laughs> so he was born in eighteen ninety-eight in. Uh, I, I believe he was born in Ireland. Yeah, eighteen ninety-eight. Yep. Uh, born in Ireland, Belfast, he, Ireland. Yeah, he immigrated into England uh, when he was a youth. He was raised in a religious se- sect. 
uh, segment, but then he actually converted to atheism. And he spent a lot of his years as an atheist, but he became good friends with another famous author who we'll also talk about later on the show, because The Lord of the Rings was also a very important book that was written around this time, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. So him and Tolkien became really, really good friends because they were intellectually on the same track. They were both incredibly smart people. They both taught in medieval universities, Oxford and Cambridge, and they both had a real obsession with medieval, uh, medieval literature as well as fairy tales and things like that. And they joined a group called the Inklings, where, who were people who wrote books and stuff like that. Very interesting stuff that we're just not getting into right now. But around the observed of, goes more into these details. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and surprised by joy That's also, totally. if you would like to get an autobiography by C.S. Lewis and how he was converted to Christianity, you can get that. We'll probably talk about that one as well down the road because yeah. it's just a very excellent book. But at any rate, uh, so C.S. Lewis, when he was around 32, he eventually gave his life to Jesus, became a Christian. And he spent the rest of his life just continuing to write, continuing to teach at Oxford. And he wrote about 30 books, I believe. And uh, I've written, I've read about half of them at this point because they're all very, very excellent. Some fiction, some nonfiction. Uh, Mere Christianity is obviously on the nonfiction end of the spectrum. So why is C.S. Lewis so important? Why are we even talking about him? Well, C.S. Lewis had a couple things going for him that made him very influential for that time period. The first one was that he was a university professor at a time when intellectual atheism was on the rise in Europe. So you had this incredible rise from the Enlightenment era that started in the about the 1900s, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the 19th century, the 1800s, where the Enlightenment uh, doctrine started going, and you had guys like Denis Diderot talking about why God was useless and why we need to get rid of God, and how uh, then you get to guys like Friedrich Nietzsche, who says that God is dead, that we have gotten rid of all need for God, and we need to move on into enlightenment and logic and reason, and everything that we do is going to reign supreme through human will as opposed to going through divine will. So that was what was happening, and Christians during this time were just getting their butts kicked. That was just that was just the long the short of it. We weren't ready. The Christian movement was not ready to deal with that type of argumentation. We weren't ready for the scientific method to get to the level that it was at. We didn't know how to argue against this type of materialistic belief system that was growing in, in strength and virility within Europe. And you needed a guy like Lewis who came from an atheistic bend, who understood what the materialistic arguments were and was intellectual enough to know how to argue against them. So he was a very, very prominent uh, uh apologist in that right. The other thing that was very important about C.S. Lewis is that he wasn't a pastor. Uh, now, that sounds kind of weird as to, like, why would we raise up, like, a layman, someone who was never a pastor, to the point that we're reading his books and talking about his impact on Christianity? Well, the reason why is because when you're in the Christian circles for long enough, you start slinging the spiritual hash, you start speaking the Christianese, and nobody outside of the church knows what the heck you're talking about. And after a time, you don't even know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> you're using all these words, and you don't know what any of them mean. C.S. Lewis being a layman and talking primarily to people who didn't believe in God had to define all these terms that Christianity taught about. And so he was able to break them down in really, really understandable ways so that people can grasp them both in the church and out of the church. So even though this book is called Mere Christianity, and it is designed for people coming from an outside Christian perspective, you can, even if you've been a Christian for 40 years, if you've never read this book, if you read it, I guarantee you, you're going to get something out of it. You're going to go through and be like, wow, I've never mm -hmm. thought of faith like that. 
I've never thought of hope that way. I've never thought of the sexual morality, uh, the sexual morality of the church as being instituted for that reason and as having that effect. He was very, very good at taking Christian language and making it palatable for the average person. Mm. Now, another really important thing about C.S. Lewis, uh, for me personally, uh, just to speak on my own behalf right now, C.S. Lewis has been very impactful for me for that reason. He has taught me how to be clear in the way that I communicate with others. Because again, when you're in the church circles long enough, you think you're speaking in a clear methodology, but you're really not, right? You're speaking mm-hmm. at a level that people just don't grab. Uh, C.S. Lewis is very, very good at bringing things down to a palatable level. Now, a lot of people will read him today, and they'll say, C.S. Lewis is tough to get into. He's, he's hard to read. His writing is at a level I can't really understand. If that's where you're at, that's okay. My encouragement is if you're trying to break into C.S. Lewis, if you try to read Mere Christianity, and you're like, this is over my head, Peter. I can't get into this thing. That's fine. I'm going to try to break down the main points right now. Mm-hmm. But try to listen to, go on YouTube and just look up some of his essays. Um, his essays, uh, they have audible versions of them on YouTube for free. And they're like eight to 20 minutes long. And just take some time, listen to it. It's in a British accent, so it's very soothing. So at the very least, you're going to get that out of it. And <laughs> at it, times, he sounds like he's doing an impression of old Wally, but uh, <laughs> for the most part, it's comprehensive. It's, it's, it's very good, you know. And, and like I said, he'll break down all varieties of topics from a Christian perspective. Very, very good stuff. So try to get into that him that way. But another big reason as to why I encourage people to read older books and not just contemporary books is because if you start reading older books, what you realize is that people back in the day thought things through much more systematically than we do today. They really had to understand the topics that they were going through. They wanted to convince not just the choir, they wanted to convince the antagonist into their position. And so they're very, very good about building upon arguments and being very concise in the way that they speak. Today, modern traditional, uh, modern contemporary books tend to not be as good at that. Mm. And that's why there really hasn't been any author that's held accountable to guys like C.S. Lewis since. That's one of the big reasons is because we, we just have disposable contemporary books that come out and they all kind of say similar things. Uh, the books that I try to write, I try to make them uh, something that people aren't really talking about, whether it's the Rooted in Sin book, which talks about sin, or my book on PTSD. But still, they don't, I can admit freely, they don't come <laughs> near to holding a candle to what C.S. Lewis was able to do. The, the way he was able to communicate and talk is really unparalleled. And if you, speaking of rhetoric, kind of <laughs> going back into our previous topic, if you want to learn how to convince people, you need to learn how to read people who are convincing. Right, that will teach you how to be more concise in your language. So, C.S. Lewis, very important figure, very important that we read his his works today. Uh, anything you guys want to add on C.S. Lewis before we get into mere Christianity? No, just apart from the fact, again, his great appreciation for ancient myth and his own culture and lore. Obviously, this is more prominent with Tolkien, but their friendship was built on that common ground. And so, for a guy who didn't just enjoy theology, the concept of God as far as his later conversion, but in the more popular children's works with Chronicles of Narnia, Mm. we also encourage people to read those because it's not only coming from the same mind, but also just as well thought through and properly executed that I would say uh, modern attempts to familiarize the gospel in media have failed to do. Yeah, and we'll probably, like I said, we're not just going to read nonfiction, we will read 
fiction in yep. this section. So we probably will go through the Chronicles of Narnia because of, like you said, Sean, how impactful that book is. It still is, right? People who don't believe in God watch movies. Yep. They like the lore. It's a really good, just a good, good read. Uh, so I'm going to, like I said, just pull out a couple quotes from the book to give you guys the main points so that even though if you haven't read it, you'll feel like you've read it. You feel like you've, <laughs> you've been there. You followed his argumentation. So uh, this is from his first chapter. It's called The Law of Human Nature. And I'm going to read from the book now. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was here first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I give you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. So C.S. Lewis's point as to why is belief in God rational, he points to the conscience within man and the way that we talk about morality. So we don't talk about morality in the sense of like, I don't like that you did this. We say you shouldn't have done this. Mm. We act as though it's a law that somebody ought to adhere to. Now what he points to is he says, if you are recognizing some sort of a law that people ought to adhere to, doesn't that insinuate that there might be a lawgiver? that there is some sort of a transcendent objective morality that all human beings must adhere to. And wouldn't that point to a God? And he does a really good job of showing as to why. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't come up with this argument. He is actually pulling from an argument that the Apostle Paul made in Romans chapter 2. I encourage you guys to read that section on your own time. But you go through it, and Paul's making that argument that God has the right and the authority to judge all flesh because he has given us a conscience. We know intuitively right from wrong to a basic extent, and God therefore has the right to judge us based on what we know to be right versus what is wrong. Now, this is really mind-blowing, and I could talk on and on about this, but this is really mind-blowing in the way that he's arguing because, again, up until this point, because Christianity had just dominated Europe for so many centuries, nobody really thought about arguments for the existence of God. Mm. No one really thought, is it rational to believe in God? The last great theologian who spoke like this would have been Thomas Aquinas. That would have been almost a thousand years prior to C.S. Lewis. Uh. After that, people were just like, yeah, God's a given. Mm. Right? Everyone just believes in God. And mm. of course, it's a monotheistic God, right? They just assumed that people thought that way. Yeah. But nowadays, right, we live in an age where it's not really an assumption anymore. Yeah. So the writings of Lewis become very important. Anything you want to yeah. say on that? Not while I was thinking uh, it's almost like um, gender. You know, now where things that we thought exactly. were given is now... <laughs> it's under examination. You know, in the future, however, however long future we have, we're going to have to be able to defend male, female, you know, body parts and what belongs to who and that kind of thing. But Absolutely. I found um, mere Christianity not as, you know, hard to understand, but it's very deep. It's almost like the Bible, and I say that very loosely, in that <laughs> it's just very deep. Yeah. Like, I'll read a section and just like, okay... I'm going to chew on that for the year. <laughs> I'm going to chew on that one for the next year. Yeah. I'll get back to the next chapter exactly. later. No, but you're right. Yeah. Um, when you read, and by the way, again, when you read old books, especially like Lewis, it's okay to just read it and be like, what can I take from this? Right? right. Like Jesus said, there are many things that you need to listen to right now, but your hearts cannot yet bear them. Right? There's, many things, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot you need to understand, but you just don't got the tools to understand it. So whatever, when you read a passage like that, God, what? 
man, what are you speaking to me right here? Yeah. You know, like what, what can I glean from this? I feel like if I can understand 20% of a C.S. Lewis book, I'm, I'm much better off, <laughs> right? Like I'm yeah. much better off in my life. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the next section, uh, this is Rival Conceptions of God. This is from his uh, second part. He says this, if you are a Christian, you are free to think that all religions, even the weirdest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered the most. When I became a Christian, I was able to think, take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does, not, uh, does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer to being right than others. Mm. Uh, this is another very important passage, especially for our day and age. It's very easy for us as Christians to speak in generic, uh, really, really black and white statements. We talk about the wrongness of people's beliefs and stuff like that. But we need to realize that, number one, not everyone's belief is 100% wrong. Right? It's not like I'm going to talk to a Hindu and see that everything that they believe is absolutely wrong. There's actually going to be quite a bit of truth in there. Mm-hmm. This is why Christians have the liberty and the freedom to quote from non-Christian sources when those non-Christian sources happen to be right. Some Christians are like, oh, you can't, you know, you can't read anything but the Bible. You can't read anything, you know, that they have the only source of truth is the Bible. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. The Bible is the only infallible source of truth. But you can find truth in other sources, mm-hmm. and it's okay to see and recognize truth in those other sources. We don't have to be afraid of the world. We can actually mine out from the world the truth of God while ignoring, denying, and debunking mm-hmm. the aspects that are false. The other way that we can bend is universalism of, well, okay, if this every belief system has its good points and every belief system has its bad points, so I guess they're all equitable in their pursuit of God. C.S. Lewis says, no, that's also not true. You can't make that mistake either. It's okay to read other belief systems and to see where they get it right, but it's equally important to be able to discern where they get it wrong and why, right? So he is speaking to the Christian church and he's helping us understand that. What I also like about this is he talks about gradations of sin or guilt. Mm. So some Christians use the phrase now, well, sin is sin. C.S. Lewis says, yeah, well, sin is sin in the sense that we're all going to go to hell before God because of our sinful behavior. But obviously, there are certain sins that are worse for the human race than others. Yeah, yeah the horizontal consequences versus the vertical, the ones Absol- between us mm. and the Lord. Absolutely. Obviously, obviously, it's better to be a Mormon than to be someone who believes in the ancient Aztec gods that demanded human sacrifice. Obviously, that's better. <laughs> Both people are going to hell. <laughs> Was that? Yeah. Both people are going to hell, but one belief system is definitely better than the other, right? Mm. When it comes to it, I would I would much rather live next door to a Mormon than to someone who again, believes in Aztec mythology and actually thinks that human sacrifice is the way that you honor the gods, right? Right. I would much rather li- live next door to a Jehovah's Witness than a practicing Muslim who believes in Sharia compliance, right? Mm. There are obviously gradations of right and wrong when it comes to belief systems. Anything you guys want to comment or mention on that section? Nope. All right. Next section, the shocking alternative. This one's really cool. This this chapter is just, it's just so good. I want to read the whole thing (laughs) on air. I won't. Uh, But let me just read a section of it. Some people think that they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give us free will? Because free will 
Though it makes evil possible, it also is the only thing that makes possible any love, goodness, or joy that is worth having. Mm. Here he's trying to help people understand the doctrine of God's sovereignty versus our free will. Why is free will so important? Whatever theology we come about as Christians, why is it so important that we preserve the notion of free will? Mm. And why does Christianity preserve it? It's because the only good things that we can have in life come through free choice. Right, we freely elect to believe in things. I freely elect to be with my wife, and that constitutes our love. Mm -hmm. I freely elect to laugh at a particular joke, and that allows me to enjoy it even more. Right, if I'm forced or coerced into something, it removes what it means to be human Mm -hmm. from me. So God preserves freedom for that reason, but God also maintains sovereignty so that His will, which is perfect, is done. Mm -hmm. And C.S. Lewis does a very good job of balancing those things. So this is again to the non-believers. Because uh, in especially Protestantism, a big major character in Protestantism was John Calvin. And John Calvin obviously founded Calvinism. And so most of the big theologians within Protestantism at this time denied the concept of free will. They were, they were intensely Calvinistic at this time. And C.S. Lewis is helping the Protestants balance what it means to, be, to believe in God's sovereignty mm. while still allowing for the free will of man and why that's so important. Yeah. Um, the Catholic Church didn't uh, obviously follow John Calvin, but the Protestant Church really struggled with that, and C.S. Lewis was a Protestant, and so he was trying to help Protestants understand this. Yeah. Um, this was, again, uh, something that his fellow, athe- I mean, his fellow intellectuals really attacked Christianity on, and he gave us a meaningful explanation for why we should think that free will is so important. Um, do you have any thoughts on that one? Anything you want to add? Yeah, just that I'm sure that's probably one of the most common questions you've had on this show over the years, I imagine, Sean, the, the free will and predestination. I'm sure that comes up probably every other week. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about Christian morality. So now we're in the third part. There is a story about a schoolboy who asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was a sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And I'm afraid that this sort of idea that the word morality raises in good people's minds, something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time, when in reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in that running of that machine. Again, really, really important section here. What he's saying is that most people, when they think about morality, is they hear constraint. So there was a philosopher who's most responsible for this guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau back in the, I think, the 1800s is when he lived. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau believed that, that human beings are naturally good, that we just have good instincts and society makes us evil. Now, what Lewis is saying is, no, the society moralities that we're taught as kids is not arbitrary. It's based on something, and therefore it can be tested. There's good morality and bad morality, and it has to have some sort of an objective standard. But that also means that if morality is objective, it's good. And if it's good, then it's beneficial. And if it's beneficial, then it's actually not restrictive in the sense that we think. So most people think of freedom in modern day as just, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis says, no, no, no. Freedom and liberty is not doing whatever you want. Freedom and liberty is the capacity to do what you need to. Or to put it another way, freedom and liberty is the capacity to do what you ought to, what you should. So for instance, the person who is a drug addict is technically free doing what they want in imbibing the drugs that they are desiring, 
but they're not free to stop, and therefore they're not free to live a life that's free from the drugs itself, right? Liberty without constraint becomes slavery. That was something that C.S. Lewis really believed. It's something that our founders believed and the like. But to see the law in this new light, this old light brought into a new perspective, was very, very important for Lewis. He had to explain to his modern intellectuals why the law was good. And that also means he was really, really... uh, effective in teaching about the joy of God, Mm. that being a Christian, following the Lord, is not something that is a bummer, it's not something that's destructive. He saw it as the most amazing joy that you could ever have. That's why his autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. Mm. And again, we'll probably talk about that in a a later week. And Lewis was one of the most important figures in my life to help me understand that, because my mind naturally goes to the cold intellectual and unemotional side of things. Uh, those of you guys who listen to me on the radio, you're like, no, Peter, no way. Yeah, yeah, it does. And unfortunately, because of that, it's easy for me to have relationships without emotion. And when that becomes my pattern, what that means is that I treat God in a legalistic fashion, and therefore I do right things because I think I ought to, and I nail myself down, and I'm disciplined, but I also remove joy and love from the equation, mm. and that's very problematic. Mm. So C.S. Lewis, he described himself as a romantic rationalist, which I love, mm. right? He was able to understand things very clearly, but he also had an emotive side to him where he can relate to the average person and he can show the beauty of God as opposed to just the truth of God, mm. which is, again, something that I feel like a lot of, poly- of apologists today have lost. Mm. They're very good at showing the truth of God, but they're very bad at showing the beauty of God. Mm. Lewis was very good at showing both simultaneously. Yeah. Um, anything else you guys want to add to that or comment no. on? Other than if you take me and you and melt us down and then make two men out of it, we'd probably Romantic be Romantic rationalists. We'd be we'd, Lewis. We'd be almost perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but All we're not, unfortunately. Last quote that I'm going to go over today uh, is just so great. He's talking about theology. And it says this, "In, In the old days, when there was less education and discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with very few simple ideas about God, but it is not so now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things discussed. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you do not have any ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ideas about God. For a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. This is, again, why it's so good to read old books. The things that we perceive as new ways of looking at God are not new. They're just old. They're old paganistic ideas that are just being repackaged in modern terms. C.S. Lewis says, theology, understanding good theology, if that wears you down if you're like, I don't like studying theology, that seems really drab. C.S. Lewis is saying, you need to understand good theology because we live in the information age. He couldn't even Mm -hmm. conceive of the age of information that we live in today. But even in his day, he's like, we're so inundated by information, it's impossible to not have an opinion about things. Mm -hmm. And because it's impossible not to have an opinion about things, you actually have to be more intentional about what you think and why you think that way. Mm. And that means understanding the theology. doesn't mean you have to be a theologian, but it means you do have to be intentional about what you think about God and why, right? And Lewis was, again, very good at balancing that, showing that, hey, I'm not saying that this is all there is. I'm not saying theology is the best thing ever. Experiencing God personally is obviously more important and more beautiful. However, if you don't have theology underpinning your experiences with God, it's very possible for something unorthodox, something bad, something evil, something 
pervasive to cloud your mind and to pull you from God mm. and to mistake a spiritual experience with the Lord to a physical experience with something other than the Lord. So uh, once again, very good at explaining that. Now, there's there's much more to get into in the book that I think is so beautiful, but I think those are some of the major points that he brings to bear within that text. Mm. Uh, once again, if you haven't read it, put it on your book list, make it your news resolution, try to read it. And like I said, in this section, we'll go through more and more books that me and Sean have found very influential in our own lives. Any last thoughts yeah. on mere Christianity? Not for me, but there it is on your screen there, Mere Christianity. It's been through several different covers, so you can look for it uh, wherever you like to buy books. I'm sure you can find it there, your favorite Christian bookstore or Amazon or whatever it is, but um, certainly a great book. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, we have we do have questions that have come in, if you guys are ready to jump on those. Uh, one from Mac D. How are you doing? Thank you for joining us. His question is, when COVID happened, I thought um, that I was close to God, but during this time I had a sense of fear. Um, but God does not give us a spirit of fear. So why did I feel this way? Also, when I prayed, he said he felt some somewhat of a disconnect that he's never really felt before when he prayed. So I know COVID was a, the pandemic was a real time of fear for a lot of people and anxiety. And, and now that more information's coming out, it's becoming a time of anger that people are reflecting right. on because they were lied to and manipulated. Yeah, difficult but, emotions for but, sure. That's the whole point. It's yeah. not wrong to have an emotion. It's not sinful to feel. But the question is, where does that emotion take you? Are you going to let your emotions determine doctrine, or are you going to let emotions guide your circumstances and let doctrine keep you stable in that time? So again, Mac, I'm sure that as you were praying, you felt like God wasn't listening, and yet you still chose to pray. Why? Because despite the fear, you understood that you needed connection with God and pursued it. That is good doctrine in the midst of not bad, but any emotion. If I'm feeling joy and I appreciate these things, I can let good doctrine inform thankfulness. If I'm feeling angry, I can let good doctrine demonstrate self-control in my life in spite of those feelings. It's when emotions inspire false doctrine or immoral behavior that we need to be worried about. So if the result of anything that's happened in history, be it COVID, be it the Spanish bird flu, be it the plague, it's all going to come down to, okay, this is horrible, this is happening, and as people are finding ways of dealing with it, wrong or otherwise, we need to ask ourselves, okay, I can't control what's happening around me, but I can control what's happening within me. You quoted 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, but note that was even addressing a situation where Timothy wanted to neglect his spiritual gift. And Paul had to remind him, going back to verse 1 of 2 Timothy 1, not to neglect the gift that was given to you, not to exercise your spiritual gifts from an attitude of fear. That's the context of that statement, not saying stop being fear. It's saying use fear, but make sure that it doesn't misinform your perception of God or his calling on your life. Yeah, I can't, there, was a, there was something at the end of his question. Uh, how, how, what was the end of the question? Uh, the, when he prayed, he felt like a disconnect that was with it. God that he'd never felt before. That was it. Yeah. So um, the way that God communicates with us, the way that we are able to perceive and understand God, you have to understand it does filter through our, our minds. So therefore, if our mind is clouded with something, that does affect the communication that we have with God. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that God doesn't transcend that at times. It doesn't mean that God doesn't push through. 
some of the, the cloudiness and the fogginess within our heads. But yeah, the, the, your mental state does affect the way that you relate to God. And that's very important to understand. And I think most people don't understand that. So uh, if you don't believe that, you know, try to go a little bit of time without sleep or without food and then try to pray mm. and see how that goes, right? It's, it's, uh, it's not that you can't, it's just that it's significantly more difficult because, again, you're communicating with God. You're, you're trying to have a relationship with a person and having a relationship with a person, when your mind is, is mucked up with something like yeah. fearfulness, like anxiety, it does affect that passageway. So a lot of times when I'm counseling people, they think that they have theological issues, but really what they have is they have mental issues. Mm. They have anxiety, they have depression, they have loneliness, they have things going on in their minds that they don't fully understand, mm. and that's acting as a filter to their relationship with God, and it's coloring their experiences with God and others. So it's important to work through those so that you clear out that kind of, like I said, that passageway, that intermediary that allows you to have fellowship with the Lord. And God is there to help you do that. I think it's, it's okay to feel as though God is far away and to continuously reach out to him. Uh, mm -hmm. There are instances in the Psalms where David talks about being distant from God. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks in Psalm 63 about feeling like he's in a wilderness where he can't find God. Mm -hmm. He talks in Psalm 42 about pursuing God like a deer pants for the water brooks mm -hmm. and finding no relief. So there are instances in the Bible where even the most faithful feel that kind of distance and separation that you're talking about. But read those Psalms and see how they dealt with it. Yeah. See how they pursued God anyway. And also notice all those Psalms I just mentioned, Psalm 3, Psalm 63, Psalm 42, Psalm 88, they all have one thing in common. They're very short. Right? When you are when you are really struggling mentally, God doesn't expect you to give him a dissertation on what's going on in your life. Mm. It's okay to give him very, very short prayers and to say, Lord, you know, it's just very difficult for me to connect with you right now. I yeah. feel distant from you. I don't know what's going on. Please help me. Help me meet me where I'm at. Help yeah. me to have a relationship with you, even in this time of mental fog, right? So that's, that's good to understand. Yeah. Yari uh, followed up with a comment on that, speaking of the spirit of fear, how do we take that into context? Unlike those in deliverance ministries who say, you know, the demon demon of fear leave in Jesus' name. So I guess yeah, I'm hearing from, from you, it's, it's not necessarily if you're fearful, it's not a demon spirit of fear. <laughs> it's okay to have those emotions, but what you do with those emotions and how you work through those. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really important to understand when you see the word spirit within the Bible, uh, they're not always talking about an entity, right? It's not always a reference to some sort of a, a, a spiritual entity that's outside of you. Sometimes when it's talking about spirit, it's talking about your spirit, right? So the, the word in Greek is suke, from which we get our term psychiatry from, psyche or psyche. So the idea is when he's saying God has not given us a spirit of fear, he's talking about your mind, your own spirit. He's not talking about some antagonistic otherworldly spirit that's attacking you. Oh. So. That's a very important, uh, I, I would call it a trick, but that is assigning to malice the people that are saying it, and mm. I don't like to do that. So let's just say it's something that they might be ignorant of, yeah. what the word spirit is trying to convey in these contexts. Right. Gotcha. Great. Well, thank you, Mac D. Great, great question. Um, very good to discuss that with you today. A question from Torbeth. Torbeth. What will climate and weather be like in the new heaven and earth? Will it be similar or different than here, do you think? Like, for instance, will there be mists watering the ground instead of rain? Do we know anything about that? Yeah, we aren't told. Um, I think the best places to go are to, first of all, know where those 
terms and descriptions came from as far as the mist coming from mm. underneath the earth rather than rain. That comes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, um, noting on into verse 5. It notes, before any plant of the field uh, was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, verse 6, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So this is noting in the context of man being created, not just for a purpose, but how God managed things in the meantime. It also adds an extra layer of humor to the prophecies that Noah was giving when he was saying, you know, get on the ark, it's going to rain and it's going to flood. Well, it hadn't rained, therefore it had never flooded, and no one therefore had needed an ark or a vessel to float in it. So literally when God told Noah, uh, it's going to rain, flood, and build an ark. It wasn't too far from the truth, that old Bill Cosby routine of him going, right, <laughs> what's an ark? He <laughs> could add to it, what's rain and what's a flood? So noting that was the way in Eden, people then have rightly concluded that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, it will be restored to Eden-like conditions. And Torbeth, you can read this on your own time. Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 go into the most detail. And in fact, Isaiah 65 in particular is directly quoted also being applied to the new creation in Revelation 21, meaning that the Lord God will give its light. But we also note there's a distinction between what Isaiah 60 was, 65 excuse me, was talking about in its entirety because it also notes that people at 100 years old, if they are rejecting a relationship with God, will physically die, whereas those who do have a relationship with God will live as old as trees. That's Isaiah 65, and Isaiah 11 makes the same points. There are elements that will carry over, like the Lord God being its light, but there are also things that we aren't told, and that's okay. There's just more to look forward to. Uh, it is the Christmas season, not just Christmas temperatures. Sometimes not knowing what's wrapped in the box makes the present all the more enjoyable. What we can know, however, is the one thing the gospel the Bible, all of God's revelation of himself tell us about heaven, and that is Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. Hmm. Very good. Anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, Sean's yeah. right. We, we don't really know. <laughs> Sean's right. That's Peter's. Sean's, Sean's right. right. Yeah. That'll be my my quoted the Bible. That's yeah, right. that's right. I'm going to contribute that every time now. Sean's right. That's my contribution. You're pretty safe with that. Um, thanks, Torbeth, for your question. I hope that, that helps you out. Great to think about those things for sure. A uh, question from Jody. How did uh, a private conversation get recorded in the Bible if the people who were involved in the conversation were not believers and they were uh, sent by the author out of the room? In Acts 4, verses 15 through 17, the apostles were sent out of the room so the council could speak amongst themselves. Yet here it is recorded in the Bible. I mean, yeah. Security cameras or what was it? So, very good question. So, oftentimes when this is happening, either A, it's being written a lot after the fact and these things have gotten out, or B, God gives them sort of, sort of divine uh, kind of eavesdropping ability. So, that, that can happen. But in this case, what's happening is Acts is being written by Luke, and Luke is a historian, and he's a very good historian. And when things are happening within the Sanhedrin, that is the Jew, Jewish ruling class, they recorded those events. So it's not like they just got behind locked doors and they said stuff and that was it. They actually recorded the things that they were saying because it was important. Kind of like in modern days, when there's a court case, you have stenographers actually writing down what's happening within the court case so that the people can review it. That's that actually that practice didn't begin with the USA. You know, it, it was happening all throughout human history. So mm -hmm. 
that that's what we believe probably happened. Luke was able to get the records. He was able to read what the discussion was after they left, and he was able to put that into his book. Mm, very good. Anything to add? Well, it, it'd Peter's be, right. Yeah, it'd be just <laughs> as silly as saying, well, how did they know what the jury had decided if they went into a separate room and decided on the evidence, weighing it out amongst themselves? Well, yeah. they went out later and announced it. Right. That's not difficult to yeah, piece together. makes sense. Gosh, we really complicate things sometimes, don't we? I yeah. know. I mean, even as you, I'm thinking like, yeah, I would maybe have that question too, but, but yeah, that makes sense. After the fact, you gather the evidence. Yeah. That's great. Jody, thank you. It's a great question. Uh, I hope that helps you out with that. Uh, we're tearing through these tonight. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've got a collection of uh, questions that weren't answered uh, earlier this week. The one from Frank. Oh, nice. I have a, actually have a live one that came in from oh, Yari. Is that on that email? I'll get yeah. to that next. If Yeah, let's do that. Um, Yari asks, are people who claim to be Christians going to be judged worse than those who aren't Christians at all? It's an interesting question. I guess it depends how far they committed to the role, if that makes sense. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul notes that people who took communion dishonorably, either they were using it to get drunk or to take food from people who hadn't had a decent meal that week, uh, and doing it, of course, for their own excesses, missing the point, rather than to honor and remember the Lord, Paul literally says, quote, that they're drinking and eating condemnation unto themselves, not only knowing better, and that's the key detail here, but sinning anyway. So when someone claims to know the gospel and never actually received it, they'll be judged in light of a not just rejection of the gospel, but a continual and knowing rebellion against the gospel. So when it comes down to this, I think the key passage for God's policy of judgment is, again, to him who much is given, much shall be required. If he's worthy of few stripes, but he knew the thing to do, he'll be beaten with many, and then vice versa. If they do something horrible but didn't know any better, they'll be judged with that in mind. So the point being made, Yari, is when you have the quote-unquote fake Christian that God knows their heart, yes, they will be judged to a much heavier degree because they immerse themselves in the things of God but every single time did so blasphemously rather than sincerely. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot we don't know about hell. Um, is, is it possible? And don't want to know. And we don't want to know. Jesus Uh, isn't there. I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is is it possible that there are different penalties within separation from God? It's possible. We just don't know exactly how that works. So in Revelation 21, when you see, uh, I mean, sorry, yeah, Revelation 21, where you see Jesus judging people from the great white throne of judgment, is he only giving 20? You're, you're right. Uh, so is he only giving the guilty versus innocent verdict, or is he actually giving degrees of penalty uh, in that time? We're, we're really not sure. We just don't know. But um, it is it is possible that God would do that, and some of the language in the Bible would lend credence to what you're saying, that people who are hypocritical and their faith toward God and using it to actually move people away from the truth of God are going to be judged harsher. Mm. Uh, so that, that that's very plausible. Yeah. Very good. Yari, thank you. Um, I have a question here. This was a, a question from the other day. It may have been the same. I can't see from here, but from Johnny. Um, is He asks, is receiving ashes from a loved one that has passed away biblical? Um, my, wife, my wife's father just passed away, and we were asked um, if we wanted the ashes, but they don't find it necessary to have the ashes. We've had a lot of, just a lot of deaths this, I mean, just re- recently and yeah. this year, but um, yeah. it's a very, you know, customary thing to 
to keep the ashes in an urn and that kind of thing. Is there anything biblical in that? Um, yeah, I guess two parts to it, of course, the issue itself, and then maybe we can deal with cremation versus whole burial because yeah. it's been a week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the the issue itself is that the Bible doesn't really say anything for or against that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to remember that cremation is a process that wouldn't be available to a lot of people, especially back in the day. Uh, the reason why is because some people think, well, you just throw the body on a fire, right? Well, no, no, no. The, the fire actually has to be at a certain temperature in order to actually cremate a body. Uh, if you were just to, don't try this, but if you were just to throw a corpse on a fire, all you would see it happen, it, was a, it would burn, but most of the skin and most of the stuff would still be left on the corpse. Mm. You and have to. And the smell. Mm. So, um, yeah. Yummy. When you go into crematoriums, they have no. these furnaces that burn very, very hot and allow for that. So it's not that it didn't exist. Say, for instance, in the book of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar utilizing a very, very hot furnace to incinerate people, but it's that it wouldn't be available to most people. So most people would just bury their dead. Uh, And there was a very specific process in which they buried their dead, things like that. Mm. But with the innovation of being able to cremate people more easily and put them in a decorative urn and have them as a part of your home, some people would think that that's a little weird. Some people would say, like, I don't like the idea that there's a dead body in the house, even if it is inside of a decorative urn. It looks very uh, looks very pretty on the outside, yeah. but it's, it's vacuum sealed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some people would say, no, I think it's very sweet. You know, uh, the, this person was a big part of my life. We like having them be continue to be a part of our life in this very interesting way. Yeah. And we're believers in the resurrection. And so we think that God's going to raise this person from the ashes that we have. And that's very cool. They're going to be raised inside the home that they experience loves. There's there's some very sweet sentimentality to it, but there's no definitive scripture that would say, yes, you should do this, or no, you shouldn't. Yeah, That's kind of a personal preference thing. Right. Yeah, just practice wisdom as far as your love and respect for the person as well as the rest of those involved in the family. You'll do fine. But as far as the time-honored question we answer very often on the broadcast, is it sinful to be cremated as mm. opposed to whole buried because Jesus was whole buried. Well, mm. Jesus also rose three days later. That's a unique situation. So let's make sure that we're not getting too nitpicky about that. When it comes to the concern people have with this, again, they want to model themselves after Christ. Great. That's a completely good attitude to have, not worthy of condemnation or correction. The problem is sometimes, and we're fortunate to live in a culture where cremation's a lot cheaper than whole burial, not Mm. just because of the rental space you have to make for the body for uh, burial plots and so forth, unless you have veterans benefits, but also noting as well the process of funeral homes and whether you're doing a wake ceremony, all these other things, ends up a much longer question and an even much longer answer. So when it comes to that, it's usually kept with finances in mind. There's other people who will try to go to Scripture and say there are actually negative examples, not towards cremation, but of people being cremated, and I don't want to follow that example. Well, well well-intended as it would be to not follow the example of ungodly people, of all the ungodly things that took place in their life, how their leftovers were disposed of, isn't one of them. The one people usually go to is in the book of First or Second Samuel, where Saul's body was recovered by the people who, interestingly enough, one of the few good things he did as king was to liberate them from uh, Nahash and his people. Mm. They uh, were able to retrieve the body parts they had strewn around in all of their pagan shrines and then 
cremated the body and put <coughs> the bones into a bone box. Now, if you were to go to Israel today or see how bodies are treated and were treated throughout the centuries in a completely biblical manner, it is essentially cremation without the fire. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, sarcophagus, for those of you who don't know, is a word that literally means a life eater or literally flesh eater. It's a mix of limestone and stuff that would make the rotting process much faster. And if you remember when Jesus was going to be visited by the women on the third day, they didn't have to do it, obviously, because of Easter. But in that situation, they brought with them lots of aloes and spices and stuff. That was actually for this purpose, to naturally, biologically cremate him, allow his body to rot faster so that they could put his bones in what was called a bone box and store that in a family ossuary, Mm. depending on where that would fit for the Nazarite's home, I don't know. But the point being made is that when it comes to what cremation accomplishes, it's literally the same thing that would happen in whole burial, just faster. You can't condemn the method. If you say, well, Saul, first king of Israel, was an unrighteous king. I don't want to follow him. Well, the people who cremated his body didn't do so to dishonor him. They gathered his body at great risk to themselves because they wanted to honor him for the one thing he did right. And again, he did other things right, but you get the point. (laughs) So the point of emphasis, again, is either, well, I don't want to follow Saul's example. That wasn't something dishonorable. Well, well, I don't want to, you know, put a financial burden on my family. Okay, that's well intended, but not supposedly upheld or condemned in Scripture, like the previous issue. If you're you know, treating it as if these ashes and you refer to them in the first person as mom or dad. That's kind of weird and bordering on idolatry, but not really. And the point being made is just that. Avoid false views of this tent, as Paul calls it, as opposed to where they are and know the comfort that's being made in that. But any decision that's going to be made in burial, you need to make sure it's biblically informed. We aren't given negative examples or any verbal condemnation of cremation and scripture in a functional sense. It does the same thing as whole burial, only faster. And note, when the Jews did it, it was even more (laughs) faster. So saying it's dishonoring to the image of God is, again, a non-starter. Just make sure that when you're approaching these things, you do so with God's heart in mind and knowing, as Peter said, the resurrection in mind. I don't care (laughs) where the pieces went. God will figure out how to reassemble it from scratch. Yeah, Yeah. my grandparents are... Their urn is buried in my parents' backyard, and we have a little fountain there. And over the years, mostly my brother buys his little garden ornaments and puts them around. And last time I was there, I bought this deer, and it's like a zoo now. It's just grown over the years. But it's just a nice place to go and sit and be with them. You know, they're not there, but, you know, just memories and thoughts. And, you know, it's probably good for the soil, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, there's good shrubbery around there. Shrubbery. Shrubbery. Um, question here from Frank, probably the last question we have time for today. Uh, will people who don't believe in the rapture still be taken in it? Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, you don't have to believe in a secondary doctrine to benefit from it. And it, it basically follows this line of thinking. If people who got saved on their deathbed never really had much of a formal Christian education, didn't know about the Trinity, didn't know about the deity of Christ, didn't know about anything, they just knew God loves me, that's how he proved it, I received that, God doesn't change who he is by nature because of your ignorance of it. Likewise, and this is again, moving on from the Trinity, moving on from the deity of Christ, fundamental things. If someone's like, you know, 
I just don't believe that when Daniel was making this point of emphasis in that particular section, that the significance of the symbol was to be applied this way. Well, obviously there is a wrong answer, and there is a right answer, but reality doesn't conform to our mistake. So if, and again, for the sake of the internet, because I know it's very popular to bash the rapture as a whole right now, but if for the sake of the internet you say, I don't believe in the rapture, great, we can have a good laugh about it on our way up. But if on the other hand you'd say, oh, the rapture doesn't exist, I don't say, well, that's your truth, like some college student. If the rapture is false, it's false, and we'll find out real quick when that seventh year peace treaty gets signed. If on the other hand the rapture is true, then regardless of your opinion of it, it's still true. The good news is it's not a salvation issue, and that's what we would need to emphasize with people, is that we'll find out again really quick who's wrong or right, But the good news is we can disagree agreeably on these things because none of them affect or impact our understanding of the four fundamentals, who God is, how he's revealed himself in history, where we get that information, and, of course, making sure that we aren't denying the big issues. Someone comes to us and saying, you know, I just don't believe in that trinity. That's a problem. Say, I never heard about it. Well, the trinity doesn't cease to exist in either one of those cases. And again, as was stated to Frank personally and to all of you listening, you don't have to understand everything about God to benefit from those facts. Mm. They'll catch up with you real quick. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's things we don't understand and are wrong on and all those kind of things. Anything to add to I'm that? Certain there's things Pizza, we don't yeah. understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, we're we're out of time for today, Peter. Thank you so much, and Sean, thank you so much. Uh, if you missed it on Thursdays, we're going to be giving book recommendations. Today, we talked about mere Christianity, or, or Peter did and presented that, and um, we do encourage you to get hold of copy. Just a great great book get hold of it on amazon or christian bookstore or wherever you usually find your your books and don't forget to like and subscribe and share and all the the buttons um we'd love to have a greater outreach and have people blessed and ministered to by the ministry here our email address questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope at gmail you can email us there of course anytime don't forget to follow our senior pastor here scott richards on twitter scott r4h that's scott letter r number four letter h to get updates we'll see you next time god bless you nailed it (laughs) you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com you can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com and be sure to join us next time on a reason for hope A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.